for Smart People for Wednesday, October 2nd, 2019. I'm Nico. I'm your host. Talking movies, television, music, and so much more in a way that smart people can enjoy them. Hey, kids. Welcome back. Welcome back to the program. If you could not tell, I am extra jazzed to talk about the world of popular culture today. Wow. There is a lot going on. I took a peek at my pre-show agenda, you know, my little docket that I often call upon in the course of this podcast, uh, and it is just jam-packed with news and goodness from the world of Hollywood. lot to get to today. This may have been the most eventful week of the year thus far from a cultural perspective. Well, let me be more specific. From the perspective of cultural things that Nico cares about, it was just a loaded week. There were a number of news items that I happened upon over the past seven days that are squarely in my wheelhouse. So I'm going to talk about them as best I can, and hopefully in my commentary you will find something engaging, interesting, intriguing uh, along the way. So let's start with what I suppose is the biggest cultural story this week it must be we got to talk joker we got to talk about the potential of joker both at the box office on the award circuit in the media uh its potential for controversy its potential for violent acts in the real world these are all concerns that are being bandied about on blogs social media think pieces And, uh, you know, it's kind of frustrating. I got to admit, it's kind of frustrating. Nay, it's very frustrating because we haven't seen the movie yet. We haven't seen the movie yet. Sure, certain industry insiders have seen it. Critics have gotten a sneak peek. It debuted at Venice a few weeks ago. There are people that have seen the film, ruminated on the film, and formulated opinions on it. But I haven't seen it, and nor have you. So this conversation is uh, quite absurd. Like, this is what happens now, though, right? Like, a movie gets hyped up for eight, nine months, a trailer drops in the middle of an NBA game, and people are like, holy shit, Joker's coming out in October. And so we begin the hype train and like Entertainment Weekly does a feature on Joaquin Phoenix and Todd Phillips and they go on a press tour and they're on late night with Jimmy Kimmel and, you know, like (laughs) we spend eight months talking about the movie Joker up until the week it comes out. And this is when the conversation is really heating up. It's hitting a critical mass, right? All the reviews are trickling out. We're talking about the Rotten Tomatoes score. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is writing think pieces in The Hollywood Reporter. And we're talking about the Aurora angle and the potential for another mass shooter. And, like, we're here, man. We're talking Joker. And then the movie comes out on Friday, and we all collectively shrug. And the conversation ends right there. The second we see the movie, it is no longer interesting at least for the entertainment media machine. It's just not as interesting to talk about in concrete terms as opposed to abstract terms. It's much more fun talking about the potential for this movie because the reality is people are going to see it. It's going to do well at the box office. I think generally audiences will respond favorably. I don't know. I haven't seen the movie, but based on the reviews, I think those seeking out a movie like Joker will be satisfied with the product they get. Joaquin Phoenix may be nominated for Best Actor. I don't think it's going to win anything at the Oscars. And then in a month, we'll be moving on to Star Wars talk. Because that's what happens with movies now. It's what happened with Avengers. It's what happened with Jordan Peele's Us. It's what happened with The Lion King earlier this year. All three of those movies, smashing success at the box office. The excitement builds to this natural crescendo, and then people actually see the movie, and they're no longer interested in discussing it. Or at least, people online are no longer interested in discussing it. Because film criticism in 2019 does not involve the actual content of the film, it involves the cultural context surrounding the film. And that is damn infuriating. 
and it's a topic for another podcast because I can go on for three hours. Point being, I'm here to talk about the Joker before I've actually seen it. (laughs) As Bob Dylan once said, fearing not that I'd become my enemy in the instant that I preach. Uh, I'm going to engage in the very practice that I just condemned. Let's talk about the Joker. (laughs) I'm the worst. I know. I'm the worst. Um, Where should we begin? Well, let's let's start here. I want to get this out of the way. Um, This Aurora, Colorado situation. It's really tricky. It's real delicate. It's real difficult. And I guess it's no one's fault in particular. I don't blame anyone for the volatility surrounding this debate. You know, most blockbuster movies don't inspire this type of conversation. Most blockbuster movies don't have uh, something so volatile, so heated, so controversial, so divisive at its core. And it's not the movie's fault, and it's not the fault of the victims of the Aurora shooter. And I mean, it's really no one's fault. It's just a shitty situation. And we as a culture often have a hard time dealing with art that was perverted uh, as an inspiration for an act of violence. Like, we still have a hard time listening to Helter Skelter. Helter Skelter is one of my favorite Beatles songs ever, but Charles Manson ruined that song. You don't hear that on the radio. You don't hear it with the same frequency as While My Guitar Gently Weeps or... Uh, or or uh, come together or let it be like it's one of the great Beatles songs of all time but it was perverted by a crazy person to justify the murder of several people and although we acknowledge there's nothing immoral about the song itself we're still reckoning with those scars 50 years later it still gives us the heebie-jeebies We haven't collectively healed yet. It's natural. I get it. So obviously, of course, the movie theater that was shot up in Aurora, Colorado in 2012 should not be screening the Joker this weekend. I get it. It's a notable exception. It's an extraneous circumstance. I'm sure most reasonable human beings can say, all right. The community isn't ready yet. If you want to see Joker this weekend, you live in the Aurora area, go the next town over. I get it. That is one notable exception. But beyond that, beyond that, y'all, we got to be very careful what we say about Joker. And this is just a feeling that I'm getting. I just sense that the conversation's about to take a turn for the worse. And maybe it's unique to me. Maybe I'm way off base. Perhaps I'm misrepresenting the discourse surrounding this movie. And I apologize if I am. But I just feel like we're getting dangerously close to blaming the art for the violence. We're getting dangerously close to blaming the Manson murders on Helter Skelter. We're getting dangerously close to blaming Catcher in the Rye for uh, the John Lennon assassination. We're getting very close to blaming Marilyn Manson for the Columbine shootings. We're not quite there, but we're rubbing up against it. And that just doesn't sit right with me. And look, I don't want to come on here and bash a bunch of mass shooting victims. I'm not about that life, man. It's not my thing. I read their letters to Warner Brothers. I found them very emotionally compelling. And I also didn't agree with basically a word they said. But of course not, because they're approaching this movie from a vastly different point of view than me. If I was in that movie theater that night, Lord knows I would not be lining up Thursday evening with a bowl of popcorn and a large Coke, ready to watch two hours of the Joker murdering people. Obviously, they underwent a unique traumatic experience, and they should be extended our sympathies and respect, because they deserve it. I'm talking about the critics, though. I'm talking about the Hollywood Reporter this week. And I'm sorry that I keep going back to the Hollywood Reporter well. Actually, you know what? This may be a good time (laughs) to 
to bring back one of our favorite segments. Let's cue the music right now, actually. Yeah, let's do this. Oh, your favorite entertainment publication decided to write a think piece this week. And now we're going to talk about it in a segment that we're calling Fuck the Hollywood No, it would just be nice if the Hollywood Reporter wrote an article about a movie and actually talked about the movie. That's all I'm saying. It'd be really nice. Uh, I, I don't want to bash Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. He His think piece I thought was very thoughtful today. Um, I don't always agree with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar 100% of the time. But uh, no, he, he echoed a lot of my, uh, my same sentiments here, saying that we shouldn't blame the violence depicted in art as uh, for violence in the flesh. That's just uh, an immoral and inaccurate way of talking about artistic expression. There is violence in Shakespeare. There is violence in the Bible. There is violence in video games, but neither Shakespeare nor the Bible nor video games are responsible when a crazy person with an AR 15 shoots up a mini mall. It's just wrong to blame the art for violence in the flesh. And I think this is the point that Kareem made in the piece, which is even more important. It's scientifically inaccurate. Those looking to commit acts of violence don't need to see a movie about a Batman villain to go and actually commit that violence. These people have perverted the message of the art they claim to understand. And to give them... Any semblance of credit, you know what I mean, to to even entertain their reasoning, to play their game, to uh, back down in the fight for free speech is wrong, man. I remember talking about this, as a matter of fact, when the interview came out. Remember that movie, Seth Rogen, James Franco? Not a good movie, but North Korea threatened military action against the United States for putting out that movie. Uh, cause what? It's a movie about a bunch of guys that kill Kim Jong Un, and so whatever studio was responsible, I don't know if it was Universal or Warner Brothers or whatever, pulled the movie from theaters because they were worried about physical retaliation. And I'm just like, yo, what are we doing here? Like that's exactly what Kim Jong Un wanted. We played right into his hand. We gave the lunatic dictator. The exact outcome he asked for. If we can't stand up to that guy, why even have a First Amendment? You know what I mean? It's super frustrating. And the same applies for domestic terrorists. The same applies for people on our own soil. If we can't stand up to the Aurora shooter, we can't stand up to the Vegas shooter, to the Columbine shooters. What are we doing here? so frustrating it's so frustrating those looking to perpetrate acts of violence don't need a reason they don't need a batman movie to push them over the edge and i'm not saying that's what you're saying but you're kind of saying it it smells like art blaming it tastes like art blaming just feels like we're rubbing up against it, Hollywood Reporter. Let me reference the article. This is not the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar article. Hollywood Reporter headline. Film critics debate. Does Joker have a problematic punchline? And so it's three film critics from the Hollywood Reporter. David Rooney, Todd McCarthy, Leslie uh, Fellerpin. I don't know who that is. Um, I know who the first two are. I don't know who that is. Um, talking about the social responsibility of a film like Joker. The question here is, 
do Todd Phillips, Joaquin Phoenix, and Warner Brothers have a moral obligation to use their powers for good, not evil? And look, it's a fairly nuanced conversation. Uh, my one gripe is that they don't talk much about the movie. They just talk about the social context surrounding the movie. And that infuriates me considering these are three film critics. Um, but I don't believe any of them think the movie's going to inspire real life violence. I don't think they're blaming the actions of crazy people with an AR-15 on the art. So I don't want to misrepresent their point of view. But the conversation does dovetail into Joker as an incel, involuntary celibate, a young misogynistic white man whose anger towards society leads to um, a very violent backlash. Um, And look, the question was posed, is this the right time? Is this the right political climate to release a movie like The Joker, which portrays an involuntary celibate who commits heinous acts of violence against the world in a sympathetic light. Um, Look, I guess for some this is a complicated question. I will not tackle this question until I see the movie. I think it would be irresponsible to speculate about how sympathetic or empathetic uh, the movie is toward the character of the Joker. I do think, though, there are a lot of great movies about a lot of bad people. In fact, some of my favorite movies of all time are about heinous human beings that commit heinous acts of violence. Goodfellas, Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, all three Martin Scorsese movies, all three, at least directly or indirectly, inspired Todd Phillips to make Joker. All three within the top 25 movies ever made. And those movies, by the way, do not let their characters off the hook. The movies do not, in any way, shape, or form, condone the actions of their violent protagonists. But they do use empathy. And folks, that's just one of the most powerful tools filmmakers have at their disposal. The ability to put the audience in the shoes of their heroes, or in some cases, anti-heroes. If you don't have empathy, you really don't have a movie. So again, I withhold judgment until I see Joker. This is an exercise in in futility until I can digest the content of the film. However, I don't like what some of these critics are implying. It just sounds like when you ask the question, is Joker problematic? It sounds to me like you're saying a movie like Joker should be off limits. A movie centering around an incel committing acts of violence is not a legitimate thing to explore on screen because in some way, portraying that character in a sympathetic light may empower incels in this country to commit acts of violence, or at least it legitimizes the way they feel about women, society, etc. I don't know if you actually believe that, but when you say things like, is Joker problematic? When you imply that the movie is somehow immoral, unethical, um, sympathetic of, of heinous acts, somehow condoning heinous acts, when you ask those questions, uh, it really gets dicey. Watch the movie. Think about the movie. And then get back to me. Right now, I don't like where the discourse is going. But again, I'll see it. That's really the main message of this whole segment. See the movie, and then we'll talk about it. And let's not pass judgment first. Uh, it's cultured. <laughs> Did I get in enough trouble yet? Oh, man, we're just stepping on minefields these days. Man, it is... <laughs> it's such a blast. I love doing this show. We're coming right back with more from the world of pop culture. Stick around. A lot more still to come after this. What in God's name is going on with Kanye? (laughs) Can we talk about this? What in tarnation? What in the name of Jesus is going on with Kanye West? What the hell, (laughs) y'all? You know, I wanted to do this podcast on like Monday. I was ready to do it, right? But I thought, you know, 
this new Kanye record's coming out, supposedly, in the next few days. We were promised it, when, on Sunday? September 27th, yes. We were promised this record, Jesus is King. Uh, No, yes, or yes, right? September 27th, which was last Friday. But then they're like, oh, you got to wait a couple days. Kanye's putting the finishing touches on things. And so they pushed it to Sunday the 29th. And here we are, October 3rd, uh, not a word. Well, I guess that's not true because he's been going to church. Kanye has been going to church. Let me read the headline from the Daily Beast this week. Kanye West's pseudo-religious Sunday service sparks walkouts in New York City. Yeezus held his infamous Sunday service performance at the Greater Allen AME Cathedral in Queens, New York, where a number of regular churchgoers walked out mid-performance. So, Kanye is just a Christian artist now. He's just a Christian rapper. It is all... (laughs) It is all non-secular music from here on out. That's what he says, at least. I saw an interview last week. Kanye says, I'm only doing Christian rap from here on out. We'll see. But he's been promoting this new album by going to church. And I guess people are not happy about this. It'd be one thing if Kanye just showed up at church and, like, you know, did a couple songs, led the worship, whatever, and then left. But, like, he's bringing a preacher around with him and uh, he's selling merchandise. I know that was the big scandal. Where was that? Coachella? Bonnaroo? I don't remember what the, the music festival was last year. Or, no, earlier this year. Easter. Remember that? He put he did the Sunday service thing. I think it was at Coachella. And he sold a bunch of uh, Kanye <laughs> Sunday service t-shirts for like $45. And look, if you didn't have an album coming out, it would be one thing too. Like if this was just his normal church-going habits and he showed up and did a couple songs, it'd be one thing. But... This feels like a fairly explicit publicity stunt. I don't know how it's going to go. I don't know how this music is going to sell with churchgoers. I know people like me are going to be interested. People like my friends are going to be interested. Regardless of the content, when Kanye West puts something out, it is headline news. We have to just clear our slates. This deserves our undivided attention. Um... But again, no one has heard the record yet because it hasn't come out yet. So I was ready to do this thing on Monday. And I'm like, oh, wait a couple days. And still we're here on Thursday. And now I guess, (sighs) is this going to be another uh, Yandy thing? Is that what this is going to be? Is he going to scrap this album too? This guy's so frustrating. But this is what we buy into, right? This is uh, this is the bed that we've made for ourselves as Kanye West fans. I think this is what I was trying to explain to people last year when the Kanye Trump thing went down and he was on TMZ and said slavery was a choice and he hugged Trump. He went to the White House, all, you know, all that shit. This is what I was trying to explain to people. You can't half-ass Kanye West fandom. You can't be a fair-weather Kanye fan. It doesn't work that way. Some artists you can be selective where it's like they put out an album that's really good and everyone talks about it and then they put out another album and it's total shit and you wait a couple years until they come out with something good again. You can't do that with Kanye. You have to be strapped into the roller coaster because that's what Kanye West's career is. He changes his mind all the time. He scraps music. He makes new music. Um, sometimes he thinks it's good enough to release. Sometimes he thinks it's not good enough to release. Uh, sometimes he sets arbitrary deadlines for himself like he did last year, um, with, with the record, uh, what just yay. That was the name of the record. Yay. He set an arbitrary deadline for himself last June and (laughs) the songs clearly weren't good enough yet to release, but he put them out anyway because that's what he said he was going to do. So look, the guy is crazy, but that's why we embrace him. We embrace the fact that he's volatile, always changing his mind, catering to his whimsy, sometimes at the expense of his own sanity. And we also embrace how vulnerable he is, how he's willing to stand there naked in front of all of us and say, look, world, this is me. I'm going through some shit. I'm a bit bipolar from time to time. 
but this is what I'm feeling. And now I'm going to make art about that very subject. And now that subject happens to be Jesus. Uh, I'm not like a huge Christian rock guy. I don't listen to a lot of uh, Christian music stations. Certainly not Christian rap. But this is the Kanye experience. And I just want this record already. Can we just do it? Give me the damn record. Also, everybody complaining, oh, Kanye exploiting church. Uh, of course. Of course. <laughs> is this not one of the 20 craziest things Kanye West has ever done? Kanye controversial? You don't say. You know, I got very excited this week. I don't know if you saw this story. A friend of mine, Mike Costantini, sent, uh, sent me this article saying that Yandi was released on iTunes under the ringtones category. It was like a big story. If you went on the uh, iTunes ringtone page, there was this whole album, presumably the whole album, every track listing from Yandi, the scrapped album that was supposed to come out last September, and they were in 30-second ringtone snippets. And many thought this was the unofficial release. This was Kanye's uh, latest attempt at an avant-garde stunt. But uh, apparently, no, it was just some asshole who... Got his hands on some recordings and released them fraudulently under Kanye's name. So that was unfortunate. <laughs> that would have been a bold strategy. You can only listen to Kanye's album if someone's calling you on the phone. That, that is, that is uh, a real audacious move. That's kind of like Wu-Tang. Remember when Wu-Tang sold the one copy of their record and they toured the country with that one vinyl record and someone bought it? I think, no, it was uh, Screlly, wasn't it? Martin Screlly? The um, the convict? He's in prison, right, Martin Screlly? The dude that inflated the price on the AIDS medication? Yeah, he's the one, he bought the Wu-Tang record for like $8 million and hid it away so no one could hear it. <laughs> yeah, Once Upon a Time in Shaolin. I love Wu-Tang. What a great move. What a, what a, <laughs> yeah, that, that's what this would have been. You can only listen to Kanye when your grandmother calls you. That's the only way you can access Yandi. Uh, I just want the album already. Hopefully it'll be here next week and I'll be able to review it. Uh, let's take another break. This is Cultured coming right back with more news from the world of Hollywood that you can use and abuse. Stick around. So, um, this next story is really interesting, and uh, it's about a guy, it's about a man, and he works in movies, he's a Hollywood type, he is in the business, um, and this guy's really good at what he does, really good at what he does, he's a film producer, he's not a director, he's not a writer, he's not an actor, not a cinematographer, I don't know the last time he picked up a camera, I don't know the last time he blocked a scene, but he's a film producer. He works behind the scenes. He gets movies financed and made, um, and he's really good. He's so good that you know his name. Some may call him a household name. People know this guy, and there are just not many film producers anymore that you know by name. You could count on two hands, dominant Media moguls, they work behind the scenes. They're responsible for financing the movies you enjoy. There are not many of those guys that you can name. Walt Disney, perhaps the most influential film producer of all time. There's one. Jerry Bruckheimer. There's two. Harvey Weinstein. There's number three. And then you get some of the director slash producer types. They attach their names to various projects in order to get them financed. That's people like George Lucas and James Cameron and Steven Spielberg, right? Those are dominant producers, but they're not primarily known as producers. Uh, I include someone like Tyler Perry in that umbrella as well. He's more of a producer than he is a creative force anymore. Um... But that's it, right? There are like 10 guys. This guy is one of them. And I think after this week, perhaps before this week, but certainly after this week, 
it is safe to say this man is the most powerful creative force in Hollywood. And I don't think there's even a number two. I don't know who's close. It's this guy and it's everyone else. He is in another stratosphere. And his name is Kevin Feige. After this week, I am uh, very comfortable declaring Kevin Feige the most influential, the most powerful creative force in film. You understand something? There was a story that came out this week. I'm sure you've heard it by now. Everyone knows. Spider-Man is coming back to the MCU. After this massive standstill, Disney and Sony have reached an agreement Tom Holland is returning as Spider-Man, and those movies will exist in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. That means Nick Fury will continue to be in Spider-Man movies. Jon Favreau will continue to be in Spider-Man movies. And Spider-Man will continue to be in Avengers movies. Everyone's super jazzed about this. People love their Spider-Man. People love their MCU. Why break them up? Right? So everybody's really happy. Great decision. As far as I can tell, the only reason this deal got done was because of Kevin Feige. The only reason. Do you understand what a massive property Spider-Man is? Do you understand the role Spider-Man plays in Sony's portfolio? It is by far their most popular franchise. By far. You've got Ghostbusters. You've got Men in Black. You've got Jumanji, and that's it. If Sony doesn't have Spider-Man, they're lost. Seriously, they're lost. They do not have the portfolio that Disney, Warner Brothers has at their disposal. So when Disney demands 50% of the revenue from the upcoming Spider-Man movies... Like, I don't blame Sony for telling them to fuck off. I, if Bob Iger knocks on my door like a fucking loan shark, charging 50% interest, get the hell out of here, you gangster. Go back and suck Mickey Mouse's dick. I don't want to hear it. I ain't giving you 50% of my property. I own Spider-Man. That's a that's a massive brand. And by the way, Spider-Man is a at least 10 years ago, would have been considered a more popular series than the Avengers. Certainly a more popular series than Captain America, than Iron Man, than Thor, than Doctor Strange. But this deal got done, and I'm not sure what the particulars of the deal were, but the deal got done because Sony wanted to let Kevin Feige keep making Spider-Man movies. Let that sink in for a second. Just imagine this, not even 15 years ago, just think 10 years ago, 2009, the only two Marvel Cinematic Universe movies to date were Iron Man, I guess Iron Man 2, that was later on, I think that was 2010, and The Incredible Hulk. If you had said to me in 2009, also this was in the wake of The Dark Knight, Kevin Feige is going to build an empire under the Disney umbrella with Doctor Strange, Black Panther, Captain Marvel, Thor, the Guardians of the Galaxy as its centerpieces. And that franchise is going to be more popular than the upcoming Superman, Batman, and Spider-Man movies. You would have said, you're fucking high, Nico. But this is how powerful Kevin Feige is. This is how good Kevin Feige is at his job. His creative influence is somehow of more value than the character of Spider-Man. What he brings to the table is more powerful than Peter Parker. That's an insane amount of influence. That, That is unparalleled. It truly is. We're an upcoming Guardians of the Galaxy movie, an upcoming Black Panther movie, an upcoming Captain Marvel movie is sure to gross more money nationwide 
than a Spider-Man movie produced by Sony. That's power. That's the type of influence that Kevin Feige has amassed. Where his brand recognition, his seal of approval, is more powerful than perhaps one of the three or four most iconic superheroes of all time. Sony did not want to see what Spider-Man would look like without Kevin Feige. You know why? Because they made two movies starring Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone, and they sucked. They made Venom with Tom Hardy, and it sucked. They didn't want to see what was around the corner if Kevin Feige wasn't involved. And so now, Disney is the big winner in this whole deal. Kevin Feige is the big winner in this whole deal. Sony got down on its knees, and it begged for Kevin Feige's help. And now, just this week, another story. And this is perhaps the least surprising news I've ever read to come out of the Disney Corporation. Kevin Feige is working on a new Star Wars movie. Disney doesn't even trust Kathleen Kennedy and the minds behind Star Wars. They said, you know what, Kevin? I mean, this is just crazy. It's like if you were in a workplace, you had a guy running uh, like the accounting department. He's in charge of the accountants. He's really good with numbers. He's really good with spreadsheets. In fact, he's so competent with the spreadsheets that they're like, hey, uh, you mind helping us out in HR? That's what Disney did. Disney acquires Lucasfilm. They put Kathleen Kennedy in charge of the Star Wars franchise. And now <laughs> she did such a terrible job fucking up what is an easy home run. Everyone loves Star Wars movies. Somehow a Han Solo prequel didn't make money at the box office. They have such little trust for Kathleen Kennedy and Lucasfilm that they're now bringing in Kevin Feige off the bench to clean things up. This is the most powerful man in Hollywood. It's not close. This is the most powerful creative force we've seen perhaps since Harvey Weinstein in the 90s. Harvey Weinstein's the only other name that jumps out. Other than that, even Spielberg, when he was slapping his name on Back to the Future and Gremlins, even Spielberg did not have this sort of brand recognition where it's like, oh, Kevin Feige and Marvel Studios are working on this movie? I'm going to go see it. And this Star Wars movie, by the way, is going to do exceptionally well. Of course it's going to do well. Because Kevin Feige knows how to do mainstream. It is perhaps his greatest gift. His ability to create culture that's accessible, covers all four quadrants. Men love it, women love it, old people young love it, young people love it. Kids will buy the action figures. Avengers Endgame is not a particularly challenging movie. It's pretty middle of the road in terms of just mainstream blockbuster appeal. But... I didn't. I have not talked to a single person that didn't like Avengers Endgame. Not one. Not one. I, I heard a couple negative things about Captain Marvel. I heard a few negative things about Doctor Strange. Other than that, not a peep. This guy understands monoculture. This guy understands how to make an event out of a movie. Because no one wants to miss out. No one wants to miss out when Kevin Feige and Marvel Studios release a new installment. And that's hopefully what he'll be able to do with Star Wars. When Han Solo, when the prequel came out, Solo, a Star Wars story, not a particularly good movie. But when that movie came out two years ago, there was a massive subsection of filmgoers that said, eh, I'll sit this one out. I'm okay skipping the Han Solo movie. These are the same people that saw Force Awakens, Last Jedi, opening weekend, Waiting with bated breath. We want to learn who Ray's parents are. Oh, the Emperor's coming back. I'm there. Opening weekend, right? There was a ton of enthusiasm at the box office for the Star Wars the Skywalker movies. Han Solo comes out. America shrugs. I'll catch it on cable. That ain't happening with Captain Marvel. 
That ain't happening with Thor Ragnarok. And that's not going to happen with Shang-Chi. The internals. All these upcoming Marvel properties. That's power. Kevin Feige is bigger than the properties he's producing. And these are massive properties we're talking about. Kevin Feige has the power to get your ass in a physical movie theater, pay 13 bucks for a ticket. He has the power to make an event out of that experience where you're not comfortable missing out. Uh, All hail Kevin Feige, our new overlord. (laughs) What a week for him. Congratulations on winning Hollywood, Kevin Feige. Uh, all right. I had a couple little items here and there. So, um, the Irishman, Martin Scorsese, Bobby De Niro, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci, Harvey Keitel, Bobby Cannavale, Ray Romano, Jesse Plemons. You know who's involved. Steve Zalian writing the script. Y'all, what are you doing to me? What are we doing? Stop. You need to stop. You can't do this to me. So I see that trailer with the de-aging technology. Bobby D holding a musket in World War II. Looks like like a character from Ready Player One, the Steven Spielberg movie. Just looks horrendous, the de-aging technology. And I'm like, oh no. They went too far with this. They spent $175 million to, uh, to to make a movie that looks like an Xbox game. Like the, the CGI is just not going to work here. And so I'm like, oh, and also it's, you know, Pesci hasn't acted in like 30 years. And Pacino is kind of a character of himself at this point. And like De Niro is still good. But as a star, I'm not so sure. Right. And, you know, everybody's nervous. And I'm like, Ugh, these are too many risks. They're just too many risks financially, uh, uh, artistically, technologically. We're rolling the dice on too many elements and this is bound to fail. You can't hit on all of them. Either the CGI is going to be too much of a distraction or Pesci is just going to be a shell of himself or the Steve Zalian script is going to be a little over the top or Scorsese is going to get too indulgent. It's like three hours long. Why are you doing this to us? You know what I'm saying? That Something was bound to go wrong. And then the reviews come out. This film debuted at the New York Film Festival last week. And uh, these critics are just killing me. Because the movie has a 100% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And the consensus seems to be that this is one of Scorsese's best movies. Like, full stop. Like, the word laudatory does not do justice the rapturous applause This movie has gotten online. Let me read some excerpts from Rotten Tomatoes right now. Again, 100% approval rating. A stunning achievement of Homeric proportion. And one we're likely to champion for decades to come. Here's another one. With the Irishman, Scorsese proves he's more alive than ever. Richard Brody from New Yorker. It runs a minute shy of three and a half hours, and I wouldn't wish it any shorter. Matthew Doherty, IGN Movies. The master filmmaker has made an introspective, thoughtful, even somber film that manages to be just as entertaining as his classics, even while diving deep into the darkest souls and finding some semblance of heart. Quietly striking scenes like an oversized meteor that rips into the earth like a nuclear bomb. The might of Joe Pesci is grand. What are we doing here? Stop! You're killing me! This is how hearts get broken. Just stop in the name of love, will you already? Oh! Oh my god, I am preparing. This is what's going to happen with the Oscars. So this movie is a masterpiece, right? I know I'm going to love it. There is no way I'm not going to love it. But if I don't love it, it's going to be the worst day of my life. November 27th when this thing hits Netflix. Uh, But of course I'm going to love it, right? It's going to come out. 
Oscar season is going to be a battle between Martin Scorsese's The Irishman and Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I don't know if I'm going to be able to survive the Academy Awards. What am I going to do? I can't believe we're actually talking about this. There's Oscar buzz for Pacino, whose Jimmy Hoffa is spectacular. Pesci, there's a little bit of a sleeper vibe there because people are like, oh, Pesci hasn't acted in like 20 years. Turns out it hasn't skipped a beat. And then you have De Niro in the lead category and he's going on the morning show with Brian Stelter and saying, fuck Fox News. Right, he's already beginning the campaign. You can feel it. He's already starting to uh, to curry favor with potential Oscar voters. So De Niro's there, Hollywood icon, and then Scorsese. There's going to be talk: Do we give Tarantino best director for the first time, or do we give Scorsese his his second? It's like, man, this is such a uh, this is such a colossal battle for the Academy Awards this year. This is heating up to be one of the most fun Oscar seasons I can ever remember. Because then you have the Joker still lurking. Who knows what Joaquin's going to be in that. Um, You got uncut gems. You got Noah Baumbach's marriage story. You got Little Women with Greta Gerwig. Like, these are uh, not only Oscar bait movies, like in the traditional sense. These are movies that Hollywood enjoys awarding, but they're also uh, like fairly mainstream. Like, obviously, it's not Avengers Endgame, but people saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and people will see The Irishman. I don't think Netflix regrets its $175 million investment. This is something that people will see and perhaps see in the theater. If it were to have been released in the theater, I'm sure it would do pretty well, maybe $150, $200 million, something in that range. So these are massive movie stars all vying for two or three trophies. Think about this. De Niro, DiCaprio, Adam Driver, Joaquin Phoenix, Adam Sandler, Eddie Murphy, Tom Hanks. These are all potential best actor contenders. And then in supporting, we have Brad Pitt, Pacino, Pesci. Oh, man. Mike Francesa for Uncut Gems? Uh, this is going to be a blast. I have I have never uh, more strongly anticipated an Oscar season. I am so excited for this. Because, again, these are movies that are squarely in my wheelhouse. Scorsese and Tarantino, like, I'd be hard-pressed to name another more influential director in my life. Right? A, a director that means more to me that doesn't have the last name Cohen. Right? I mean, it's just, these are my guys. These are my guys. And only one of them can take home the Oscar for Best Director. Now, if one of these two does not take home the Oscar for Best Director, we riot in the streets. Get the pitchforks ready. Because we're burning down some mansions in Beverly Hills that night. <laughs> <laughs> The Irishman, don't let me down. I just pray, I plead with you, don't let me down. I hope this anti, uh, this this de aging technology works out because I was really nervous about that, but um, apparently it's not that bad. You get used to it, they say. Oscar season is here. Get ready, strap in, because Cultured is about to become an Oscar podcast for four months. And I can't wait to be with you every step of the way. Uh, I think that's all I have. I am fresh out. I was going to comment on the Birds of Prey trailer, but I think I talked about that on on the Movie Hall of Fame this week. So go listen to that show. It's available now. The uh, Movie Hall of Fame Class of Batman. We did a Batcast in honor of Joker this weekend. Uh, We nominated six Batman movies beside the Dark Knight, because the Dark Knight was already inducted into the Movie Hall of Fame a few weeks ago. So we nominated six Batman movies, and we inducted yet another one into the Movie Hall of Fame. So it's Batman the Movie from 1966, Batman from 1989, Batman Returns, Batman Mask of the Phantasm, Batman Begins, and The Dark Knight Rises. 
One of those movies earned a spot in the Movie Hall of Fame. To find out which one, listen to that podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, wherever you get your shows. Uh, that would mean a lot to us. Also, uh, why is this a thing? We did Exorcist 2, colon, The Heteric. Uh, the Heteric. Uh, the Heretic. That's available on the website as well. Uh, it's our Spooktacular, our annual October Spooktacular. All horror movies, the month of October. So go subscribe to Why Is This a Thing to listen to those reviews. And that's it, I think. I'm doing a Two Cents Radio later today with Rob and Nick. That'll be available on the site probably around Friday or so. Uh, Nico Show still around. Yeah, all the use. Go to the website, tmt.media, too many thoughtsmedia.com if you enjoy typing more. Uh... Nick just did a fresh reboot of the website. We were having website issues, and he rebuilt the whole thing from scratch, and it just looks fantastic. So go to the website, check it out, and we appreciate all the undying support. You guys are the absolute best. We love you so much, and that's why I continue to do this show. It's because you guys keep listening. All right, that's it. This has been Cultured, and you know, I hope you come back next week. Because right here, you know what happens. You and I, we get culture!